Hey, welcome to TBT's podcast. I'm Dan Friel. On this edition, we're going to hear from Tony Ponturo. Tony's one of TBT's advisors and one of the original people that helped TBT get to where it is. Tony's got a decades-long career in sports, and specifically at Anheuser-Busch, he was the VP of Global Marketing for Sports and Entertainment. Really has a great perspective on where the sports industry is and what makes TBT unique. Remember, if you haven't already, you can vote on thetournament.com. If your team wins, you could win too. $200,000 of the $2 million winner-take-all prize this year is going to go to the fans of the winning team. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review and subscribe. It'll help spread the word. Thanks. Hey, Tony. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks. How does it feel to be a Villanova Wildcat fan a week after winning that national championship the way that they did? Well, I think I'm still walking with my chest out a little bit, and I do find myself wearing my Villanova T-shirt probably a few more times in the workout room. But uh, it's amazing about sports, you know. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, removed in a sense of graduation day, you know, 40 years from from Villanova, uh, but then I got to enjoy 85 and, of course, now in 216. So your pride comes back. Uh, you find yourself, you know, barely being able to watch the game. Um, uh, I, I did not go to Houston, but I ended up in a in sort of a New York City takeover bar uh, for Saturday's game, which was quite fun with, with you know, Villanova alumni. And then I, I had to watch it, in, in, you know, by myself on Monday because it was just too intense, although – I was texting friends back and forth throughout the whole game, but it's just the uniqueness of sports where you're, you get these amazing emotions, which you and pride and, and, and everything else that you just almost don't get from any, any other kind of activity or anything else you follow. So set the stage. You're sitting there by yourself because you couldn't stand the idea of someone else being around distracting you as you're trying to watch the game. Yeah. You know, it's like almost no distractions. I'll do that for, from time to time. You know, I, I've been in sports as a business person for, um, you know, really since uh, well, I went. I worked for Anheuser Busch for 26 years, running our media and sports marketing. Was there from 1982 to 2008, and of course, when you're marketing beer and using sports to do it, I was fortunate to go to so many events, and and so it, it really was 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 great fun, but also great challenges to do the job. But I've always grown up at sports. But, you know, it was important, you know, if you're if you're at the event or, you know, you're at a bar watching with fans, there's a certain real excitement to that. But you you can't be focused on anything. And so, yeah, I do have this odd, uh, you know, sort of practice that if there's something really important or sort of emotionally attached, I'd like just watching it, you know, sort of, you know, by myself, uh, and, and take in every shot and every, uh, and, and every movement. So it's, yeah, it is potentially a little odd idiosyncrasy, but, uh, it's, it's one that I do have. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, been to as, having been to as many events as you've been to and done all the things that you've done, I can see the value and the enjoyment that you'd get out of being able to sit there and actually enjoy the game on your own. Well, you know, and I was fortunate. I probably went to 15 different Final Fours, and I do believe that that Saturday, those two semifinal games are probably, other than the Super Bowl, you know, one of the one of the great all-time sporting events to go to. But 
you know, you do realize that, again, and particularly, you know, and I understand, I guess we all have gotten to learn about big business and these big arenas, but, you know, it's, it's you know, you're, it's not that intimate uh, kind of, uh, you know, experience when you're at these big arenas that are holding 76,000. Even if you have a good seat, you're still pretty far away from the court. So to, so to really just sort of uh, absorb it and take it all in and, and, and hear the hear the commentary is, is, uh, is uh, you know, is is something fun to do in the balance of having been spoiled to go to so many other events in the past. You mentioned it a second ago, but I was hoping you could kind of give everybody a little bit of your background in sports. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was a young advertising agency person in New York uh, at first and worked on brands like uh, Coca-Cola and then was hired by the agency for Anheuser-Busch. And about six months into that process, I was 30 at the time, um, and Isaac Bush was the client. They said, you know, we would like you to consider coming to St. Louis, being part of a team that was essentially going to use sports and use marketing to grow the business. What a lot of people, there's no reason they would realize that in 1982, Isaac Bush had just three brands, Budweiser, Michelob, and Bush. Bush wasn't even a, a national brand, no Bud Light, no none of the you know brands we all see today and only a 22 market share and i came in as director of media to at the time work with the broadcasters and espn and nbc and abc etc and really start building this you know marketing programs sponsorship programs uh with our beer brands uh and then 1985 but light came out and then we really started to, you know, use sports with a new brand to grow a business, and particularly in a light beer category that was starting to grow very, very fast. And um, and one of the things, not to get too technical, but being a baby boomer, baby boomers really stuck with beer more so than other, you know, when when they wanted an alcoholic choice. And so we as a company using sports and using sort of that interest of that baby boomer bubble going through 25 years really grew our business ended up when i left at a 50 market share and really been became one of the, the most prominent sports sponsors in the u.s if not in the whole world because we did things like you know the world cup and you know english premier league and and formula one even outside the u.s but uh we were you know the official beer sponsor of NBA and Major League Baseball and NFL and, uh, and and did at one point we sponsored over ninety uh, percent of all the professional teams in the country one way or the other and of course Anheuser Busch is is known for really being the first marketer to give ESPN its first sponsorship and we did five years at a million dollars per year to be the exclusive beer on something called ESPN which had all of 10 million homes back then and not a lot of sports rights, but believed in a vision and, and believed in the, you know, that sports was something very emotional with great passion and great following. And how could you build a 24 seven network behind that passion? And we all saw what that did and we grew with it uh, as a sponsor as well. How did that work, Tony, with ESPN? Was it for every bit of programming that they did? As it was like it was it was something to the effect of we'll do 
two thirties, two thirty second commercials every every half hour, so for an hour. Uh and so it just rotated through. Um and then uh then there were several renewals o- renewals over time but one of the clauses, probably in the first renewal, so after five years, was if they ever got a major, quote, sport, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, then then it would have to be sort of re-looked at it, renegotiated. We would, we would still have our 230s per half hour, but it wouldn't be exclusive, but we'd have a right to then – go in and, and and spend some more money if we wanted to to be exclusive in the big games. And as the business grew and as ESPN grew, it, you know, you would end up spending, you know, your whole budget just on one network if you kept up with it. So so over time we pared back, we decide we, we really didn't pare back without a pocket of cost, but we pared back and saying we can't keep up to be the only beer uh, on this broadcaster that ended up with ESPN2 and ESPN News and, uh, and, you know, ESPN.com and, and magazine. So, uh, so over a period of time, you, you kept participating, but you weren't, you know, you couldn't keep up financially to be the only beer. Was it clear in those early days of ESPN where sports and sports programming were going uh, in relation to your role as a marketer? It was clear to us that that all research, if not your own, you know, sort of instinct and gut told you that a beer consumer was interested in sports. But you had to believe in the vision. And that's one of the things that, you know, as I do some consulting now for 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 other businesses is you don't want marketers to lose the passion of a vision and giving things a chance and and you know people will say you know today oh that was an easy decision to buy ESPN well not really you know i mean it it was for us but a lot of other people were jumping on board but you had to believe in you know bill rasmussen who started ESPN had a vision of doing you know this 24-7 network on a satellite dish and slowly build, you know, getting the rights, um, you know, to, to make it entertaining. But he, he you know, he, he needed people to believe in that vision. Um, and I think that's really important. And, and, and hopefully we don't lose some of that as, as we've gone out in time because, you know, some of the best risks and educator risks can sometimes be, you know, the most, uh, uh, you know, profitable and satisfying, uh, you know, if you're just open to, you know, keep your eyes open and do, and do that. Speaking of having your eyes open, Tony, this is a good time to uh, transition as to why we've got you here. How did you find out about TBT and what interested you in it when you were first approached? To be uh, totally honest, I was introduced to John Mugar, who's, you know, the, was the founder and, and really had the vision of TBT. And um, it sort of started out as, um, you know, sort of an hour consult. And I don't, you know, having had the, the background and history I had for 26 years at Anheuser-Busch, I was, to be honest, selective in who I would want to consult with. And I had to believe in the person as much as the property and maybe the, the person, uh, you know, almost as much, you know, you know, who, you know, who are your, you know, who are your partners and who do you want to spend time with? And I did a, a consult with John and, and some of his team members, which was a, a small group back then. And I can't speak for John, but I can speak for myself. I think John realized that I just, 
you know, gave it to him straight uh, in a sense of, of what I thought and what I think, you know, was important. But most importantly, I was excited about his vision of the project um, and that it was something that was really trying to put something back in the hands of the fans. You know, I teach at NYU these days, and I keep trying to tell even my own students that we, the consumer, we, the sports fan, essentially underwrite sports. You know, whether it's going to a game, whether it's jerseys and other merchandising, or whether it's, you know, buying, you know, uh, you know, cable system or how, however you know, the entities get a little bit of our, you know, discretionary dollars. We, the fan, really underwrite all these big dollars we see. And, and TBT was a way to sort of put it back in the, in the, in the fans' hands, you know, which is you have a chance now to compete at, at a, at a, you know, very quality level, you know, in essence, professional level, uh, and compete for now this year for $2 million. What an amazing kind of thing. So, so it, he, he sold me on the concept, uh, that it was, that it was, you know, this sort of, you know, sort of for the people, for the fan, and particularly for the basketball fan and try, and, and trying to bring some new element Two, two sports that, that in many respects isn't, isn't there today. What you said about fans underwriting sports seems really accurate. How did we get here? I mean, was it something that you think happened all of a sudden, or do you think it was more gradual? I think what happened, and, and it was sort of subtle, and, you know, television, you know, when I was growing up was free, you know, and it was supported by advertisers. And whether if you were NBC or CBS or, or, or ABC, you could only compete with rights with advertising dollars that you brought in, essentially, unless you wanted to, you know, extend, you know, rights beyond revenue you thought you could generate. Talking about ESPN, but then ESPN and regional sports networks like, you know, Comcast New England or Yes or, you know, uh, you know, you know, all the very, you know, Fox Sports Midwest, all the way around, you know, Time Warner, we slowly started to buy our sports on cable. Um, and, but it, 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 we did, I don't know if we as a fan, I guess we knew we were writing a check to our cable operator, but in essence, it started to create a second revenue stream, which then allowed sports rights to go up, uh, because now there was two revenue streams, advertising support and cable operator support or subscriber report, which is really us. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's sort of this subtle approach, which we don't really think about it as a fan unless you're in the business. But if you really think about it, there's only like five or six ways sports gets money to pay for rights and pay for professional salaries. And it's all ultimately comes from the sports fan. It comes from the consumer. I think those that us don't, that don't live in the business say, well, ESPN gave them that money or Comcast New England gave it them the money. Well, yeah, they did, but they got the money from us, the sports fan. And, and that's one of the things we, we, you know, I think we don't always realize, but should realize. And that's why I think knowing that and being able to observe that in business for 30 years, I like what John was doing, which was, okay, that sports fan who is underwriting professional sports is now has a chance, you know, at, at sort of the brass ring, if you will, by competing in TBT and competing for, uh, 
you know, a, a, an amazingly attractive winner-take-all prize. Tony, when you look at the consumption habits of younger fans, and I'm sure you see this um, with your class at NYU, but do you see an issue on the horizon as it pertains to sports media? Yeah, I think there's a big issue. Um, and, and uh, you know, I was actually reading this morning that the Masters was down 10%, you know, from last year, even though, you know, it turned out to be a pretty interesting Masters. You don't know that going in. But young people, clearly, that the millennial generation, um, they're not spending three hours pretty much on anything, much less one or two hours. And they also have to buy into it. And and there's many choices. You know, you can watch, okay, there's there's 162 Yankee games, Red Sox games, Mets games, Cardinal games. You know, so so you can pick and choose and you may only spend you know, you may people may say, "Yeah, well, I watch the St. Louis Cardinals every day," but they, but they may only watch 15 minutes of it, 20 minutes. And of course, those like ESPN have taught us how we can get our sports somewhat in sound bites as well. Um, and so, uh, but now between streaming and apps and and just you know the whole element of of sort of the multitasking and and one of the things they have to teach professors very quickly at universities, and I assume it happens everywhere, is students today uh, sit in their classroom with their laptops open. And so the cynical professor would think, oh, you're watching, you know, you know, something on, uh, you know, you know, you're watching a movie or you're watching a funny video on YouTube or what have you. But what they're really doing uh, is if you mention a name they're not familiar with, it, they quickly Google and say, OK, you know, professor just mentioned, um, you know, an individual that I've never heard of. I- I'm going to go Google it. So they're so they're doing multiple things at once. The other thing which a student actually said to me because uh, I cause I said to them these are students that's getting degrees in sports administration, sports management. It's like okay, if you were king of sports, what would you do? And the one student said, well, I think tickets are have really been priced out. They're not affordable, and if I don't get to go to the game, then I sort of don't build the excitement of then why should I watch? And it starts to become this slow attrition. That again, you know, like in any business, you have to see where the soft underbelly is. That's starting to erode that you either want to ignore or you're not seeing, but all of a sudden that it gets that erosion starts to become a real hole and then it's too late. Uh, so between technology and between uh, all of us getting the opportunity to, to enjoy it from an affordability standpoint, um, these are real issues. Um, and not to lead you into the next question, but one of the things that's that's so great about TBT, and 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 listen, I even though I believed in the concept, I wasn't sure in those that first year. Okay, what's the competition going to be like? I don't think anyone knew. And what so amazed me uh, is is not only you know how good the competition was in a sense of performance, but just how competitive and how entertaining it was to go see. So. So, yes, there's an opportunity to see it on on ESPN and through streaming, but but on site, to be able to go see, you know, five or six basketball games in a day, if not more, you know, for, you know, an extremely affordable price, that's amazing competition, uh, and and follow even 
you know, maybe some of the, some players you knew in college or even at the NBA. Wow. You know, so it's not only giving back to the fan in the sense of a competition standpoint, but it's giving back to the fan in the sense of affordable entertainment, which is really, really good. What do you think sponsors are thinking when they're looking at kind of what's coming down the road in light of these rising costs uh, for fans? I think sponsors um, tend to still be a little safe, uh, which which I find disappointing. So, and and we used to even call it, it, it when I was in the agency business, sort of the the CEO buy, you know, because they is something they understood. Um, you know, if you said I have two commercials in the NFL Sunday football, I have two commercials in NBA playoffs, or I have, you know, commercials and things that they understood, but that's not necessarily where you need to be, you know, and what advertisers and what CEOs and marketing heads of, 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 of organizations need to do is reward people to take smart risks, take educated risks to say, well, you know, the 25 year old, you know, is not spending all that much time on some of those bigger things and the ratings will sort of show it but they are going to spend time on something that's that, that they see as interesting different maybe isn't big business you know is 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 affordable and those are the kind of things like tbt that should be more looked at from that standpoint um uh and, and understand that consumer um so so it's that balance of you know, and, and, and everything really is a balance. You know, it's not so much, you know, it's not an either or, but can you, can you have, you know, can you take 20% from your big sport budget and spread it around, you know, three or four? It doesn't just have to be TBT. It could be other things that are extending your reach and extending, um, sort of non-duplicative audience in places that you normally aren't seen. Um, and the smart ones will, will wake up and do that. Um, and, uh, um, and it happens, you know, at all corporations, you know, it's sort of that, um, you know, getting, getting ahead of the curve before the curve, you know, knocks you, <laughs> knocks you on your fanny. Was that something that you felt that you were calculating when you were making the decisions uh, for AB to jump into sports as heavily as you did? Yes, we were very empowered. I was very fortunate. And sometimes, I mean, I knew it at the time, but you, you, when, you, when you reflect back, we were we were able to sort of feel the space. You know, we were able to go do ESPN, um, you know, but you also had to, you know, it sometimes be, it'd be, it's okay to fail. I mean, I met with Dick Eversole, who was president of NBC Sports and Vince McMahon when he had something called the XFL. And we thought it made sense for Bud Light. It was going to be new. It was going to be, you know, sort of a millennial space, you know, back now, probably 20 years ago. Um, and, and it, and, it, it didn't get past its first year, um, and probably for a whole lot of reasons, but, you know, there were, but we got in there and, you know, we experienced it and, and, you know, there was no, oh, how could you ever get us into the XFL, uh, or, you know, other things we may have tried, but you do it. Um, you know, there's people, it's not a sports thing, but there, there's advertisers that could, you know, lie a hallway that said, well, what's this thing called American Idol? You know, these, these, you know, these people who are not stars singing with some judges. And there, there is, you know, so, so, you know, if, if, you know, so we were allowed to do it. We were allowed to, 
um, be be smartly aggressive and and take initiative. Um, and even if you know, even if I was preaching to marketers, you know, even if you were taking you know one to five percent, you know, these are big budgets for some of these people. Take even one percent of your budget and 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 look at things that are new and different. It's going to be a lot better for them than to spend that extra one or five percent on something that, that that's just becomes duplicative and they've done for the last, you know, 20 years. When you were debating the decision to actually link up with the XFL, did you meet with Vince McMahon in person? Yeah, and you know, and, and one of the things that I, I, I tell people from time to time is, and I, I was fortunate to, to, you know, to meet with people like Vince McMahon, with Don King, Who's a bit of a character from the boxing promoter side? Um, I've met with Jay Z. I've met with Kanye West. I've met with people across, you know, what, what I would call interesting personalities. And what you learn, you know, and I guess it shouldn't be a surprise in one respect, is that someone who's been sustainable in business, whether it's sports or, you know, in some cases music that I mentioned, are really, really smart people and are really smart business people. Um, I remember meeting with Kevin Spacey, you know, when he wasn't the Kevin Spacey of House of Cards and, and all the things he's done, you know, and had an idea for a website. Here's another example. Why do a website called Trigger Street Productions for new um, uh young independent film people to put a small film on the website. He wanted $200,000 for one sponsor. I said, we'll do it. Well, you know, Trigger Street Productions today is now doing everything from House of Cards. They did Social Network about the whole start of Facebook. They did, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey. They, you know, they're, they've become an amazing production company, but it started with, you know, can I have $200,000? Have is the wrong word. Would you sponsor? Would you support my website idea for $200,000? And then you, you know, and then you build that relationship. But, but, you know, so you learn these people are, you know, have visions, but also are good, smart business people because they don't, they wouldn't last if they didn't. And so, yeah, it was, and also that they do it, you know, Vince McMahon, uh, with his daughter Stephanie, I believe is her name, you know, came in. We met here in New York, and uh, I was in St. at the time, but we had an office here, and and he excited us enough that it made it made sense to do so. Uh, um, so yeah, you would when, when you, you you get the privilege if you're in sports business for a while to to meet with all these kind of people, and you know, and and you see. Who's real and and who's and who's not? And he was he was real. Since you left AB, you've gotten involved in Broadway with Lombardi, Magic Bird, uh, and the Bronx Bombers. I'm wondering if you see something similar in the personalities of all the people you've profiled in these shows. Yes, I think uh, all all three said sort of the same theme, um, but in sort of a different way. It was all about leadership. Uh, and teamwork, um, and being sort of authentic and real. And those were sort of themes. So with Lombardi, you know, what we were so captivated was with is, you know, and then what, what, what I tell, I teach this as a whole class, this one, you know, one class in a semester is, you know, Vince Lombardi was a high school coach up until he was 35. You know, he, he didn't go to Green Bay until he was 47 as a head coach. That was his first head coaching job professionally. And so, 
but but what he was what what he was was a teacher, and he was able to take he took a basically a, a three and ten Green Bay Packer team back then, made them you know within two years I believe you know NFL champions, same people you know it wasn't the years of agents or you know heavy drafts, um, but it was how working together and and uh, you know all sort of pulling the roar the same way. Magic Bird, uh, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird was similar in that they were two individuals had amazing talent but worked hard every day and they actually drove each other and they became good friends because of their respect for each other but they also had the same sort of work ethic and what what whether it's Vince Lombardi or whether it's Magic Johnson and Larry Bird all from different walks of life it's the fact that there's no shortcuts you have to work hard every day you know Larry Bird's doing you know a thousand foul shots you know, a week so he could have a, you know, over 90% percentage of foul shots. And, 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 and back before all this social media, they would literally read each other's box scores to see what the other one did to drive them in the sense of, of, be, of being better, not just sort of mailing it in. And with the Yankees, you know, it was about, okay, there's something in an organization, something in a culture that can win 27 championships. And, and the second franchise in baseball, you know, is, is the Cardinals, which has, you know, I believe 12. So what, what's, you know, what, it, you know, and again, it's the same thing. It's leadership, it's teamwork, it's everyone working together. Um, and it's actually the course I teach at NYU is leadership and also leadership in a crisis situation. And the themes are scary how similar they are in the sense of, you know, how to do things right as a leader. And, and then we, we as not followers, because we're all leaders in our own way, but what inspires us to do it. And, and, uh, you know, I actually tweeted out this afternoon, uh, that, you know, there was the NBA tweeted out uh, a video of Steve Kerr as a bull making all those shots. And of course he was on the team that had 72 wins. And one of the things, you know, two things that I think his players admire about him. One is he actually walked the talk. You know, there is something about, okay, I played this game, I get it, and here, and I performed on that team. But he also knows how that he learned from, from Luke Olson to, to, you know, to Jackson to, to, uh, to Popovich is that this whole, you know, unselfish play, teamwork, you know, things that are important, you know, you know, leave your, leave your ego, you know, in the car that you drove to, to the playing field with and come in here as one. And so it's a very consistent theme that, 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 that def, definitely halos successful people and successful teams. The last thing I was hoping to talk about is what you're looking forward to about TPT in 2016. What gets you excited as you think about the event in the future? I, you know, I think to me and what we're seeing and it's in its very early stages of 2016 is the pulse of things moving forward, uh, you know, really at, at, you know, not, you know, really big numbers in the sense of fan following, team interest, um, and, and, and when you build a right foundation in business, which I really feel collectively TBT has done, then you just keep growing on that foundation. So, you know, you do everything right, you know, and listen, we're all, we all can make mistakes and stuff, but if everything's done 
for the right reasons, you build a foundation and then it'll start to grow. And so we're seeing the fan interest grow in its early stages. We're seeing the team and player interest grow. And then what I hope follows is like in any business plan that, that, you know, sponsors should want to grow and embrace this, you know, uh, and, and then, you know, obviously we have the, you know, the support of ESPN, but, as, as that's promoted on air and that this, this is a really quality property that's very unique and has this real core foundation to grow on. So I see, you know, I feel really, yes, could it be somewhat selfishly because I'm involved, but more objectively as a business person, I see it as, you know, really having, you know, the foundation to grow not just year three, year four or five, but for a long, long time. And, and that's, that's what I'm most excited about that, uh, that it, that it has a very, uh, uh, exciting future.